you know, <clears throat> what you believe and what you hear has a massive amount of, of sway over what you do. What you believe and what you listen to, what you hear, has a massive amount of sway over what you do. I was reading this week about a Japanese man who was uh, a <clears throat> soldier in the Japanese uh, military during World War II. His name was Lieutenant Hiro Anada. This man, Lieutenant Hiro, he was commissioned during the war to go into the Philippines and to uh, take part in guerrilla warfare. His orders were to cause as much of a problem as he could uh, for the Allied forces. So, yeah, like you can imagine, um, bombing bridges, all kinds of things. Him and, and a small group of soldiers. Well, the war ended at some point, and nobody told Hiro. <laughs> and his men. So they continued to cause problems. And because his orders were specifically to not surrender, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what anyone says, don't surrender, he continued to fight on and on until all of his companions, all of his other men either gave up or died. Um, he continued to fight surviving off of coconuts and stealing cattle and all of this stuff, no matter what anyone would tell him, for 30 years... <laughs> this man continued to fight World War II. The only reason he stopped was because his commanding officer literally flew over to the Philippines, sought him out, and told him, it's over. It's done. It was the only reason he was convinced. That's a true story. You can Google it, right? You can, you can find out about it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. 30 years fighting a war that no longer existed. So what we believe to be true has a massive power to shape what we do, doesn't it? This is why um, television ads, commercials, they spout facts and information at us, right? They wanna change the way that we think about something in order to change our actions and our behavior. You know, if you use this toothpaste instead of that to toothpaste, your teeth will be 13.5% more white. And if you use, you know, this hair cream rather than that hair cream, you'll be 10% less bald or whatever it is. Not that there's anything wrong with being bald for those of you out there. Um, so, yeah, that wasn't in my notes. Okay. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's facts are given in order to change behavior, right? This is why politicians often spew out statistics and facts and things to try to change your mind in order to change your behavior. We know this. This is true. What we believe matters. And faith is really unavoidable. You have to take someone's word at some point. Did you know that? I was thinking about this the other day. I was out backpacking and we were hiking down this trail and it was kind of a technical trail and you're kind of jumping from rock to rock and stump to tree and you're grabbing on to, to branches to try to hold yourself. And I was thinking, wow, you know, I'm making a lot of faith decisions right now. I'm trusting this tree branch is going to hold me. I'm trusting that rock right there isn't going to move. <laughs> I'm trusting my legs that they're not going to give out. You can't go through life without trusting things. You're going to trust things. And we typically trust uh, the things that we listen to the most. Those things begin to shape our mind. They do. That's why Romans talks about the transformation of the mind, that, that we as Christians are to have our minds renewed over time by changing what we think. Now, a Christian, now follow me on this, this will all come together. A Christian, by definition, is simply someone who has chosen to take God at his word. Okay, that, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has chosen to say, God, I believe that you are who you said you are, that you did what you said 
that you did and that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Taking you at your word. Okay, here's a couple passages. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What makes us disciples? We listen to Jesus. His word abides in us. We abide in his word. That's what makes us disciples. Paul said in Romans 10, 16, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. Our faith starts by what we hear and then choosing to believe that that word spoken is reality. We respond to it. That is saving faith. Being a Christian is not, uh, is not believing or hearing and believing the gospel once, though, is it? It's hearing and believing the gospel when? Every day, every second, every week. That's my whole sermon right there. Okay, so we're going to talk about all morning. I'm excited. My goal today is to convince you that you need the gospel every day, every minute, every second, every week, every month, every year. You need it all the time. The gospel is what we are saved by. It is what we are sanctified by. That's what we're going to unpack this morning. For the next three weeks, we're looking at a series, a vision series for Philippi Church. We are turning three years old in like two weeks. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, clap for us. Yay. Yay. God is good. Okay. Three years old is not impressive. Um, we've made it three years. Wow, God's good. Okay. Uh, three years, which means that I think as a church, we might be slightly potty trained by now. Um, you know, we, we can walk a little more efficiently, so we're still pretty immature. Now, three years, and this is a good time um, to stop and ask good questions about what we're doing and where we've been and where we're going. So for the next three weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to sort of take a good look at what is Philippi, why do we exist, and we have a lot of new faces. So if you're new, welcome. It's a good morning for you to be here. Um, we're going to talk about what Philippi is and why Philippi exists, and we'll take three weeks to do that. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at three different things. This week, we're going to talk about, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me, let me back up. We're going to ask the question, what is a healthy church? And then we're going to ask, are we are we healthy? Are we becoming more healthy? Are we on the right track? Now, I need to explain something to you about what a church is really quick, and I'm not going to assume anything this morning. I'm just going to go really fundamental, um, because sometimes we, we in church, we just assume what we know what these things are, and we haven't necessarily thought about them. So let me talk about what a church is really quick. First of all, a church is not something we make up. It's something we dig up. It's not something we make up. It's not something we dig up. Here's what I mean by that. We don't get to decide what a church is. God decided what a church is. We are called to respond accordingly to what a church already is. Uh, let me put it this way. A church is not invented. It is discovered. A church is not like art, where we can get cute and creative and paint with all these different colors. A church is like science. You understand what science is? Science is, is the discovery of what is. We're looking at what already exists, and we're saying, how can we better understand the human body or the cosmos or the creation itself? See, the church isn't something we can invent because we didn't make it. We don't own it. We didn't design it. And so we can't necessarily get cute and creative about what we want a church to look like. The right question is not, what kind of church do we want to be? I don't really care what kind of church we want to be. The question is, what is a church? And how do we be a really healthy one? Would you agree with that? 
Okay? Now, that, that doesn't mean we can't have um, dreams and hopes about what God might do, but the, the very fundamental inner workings of what a church is is not up for us to define. It kind of lives in the same category as a man and a woman, or marriage, or a lot of other things that we really shouldn't fiddle with, because God made them a certain way. So th- this is something I made. God made the church. It's his church. He bought it. He paid for it. He started it. He created it. And he's sustaining it. And he's going to save it. Amen? Who owns the church? Jesus owns the church. God, the Father, owns the church. He bought it with his son's blood. So I am not going to stand up here and presume to tell the Lord what kind of church we are going to be. I am going to say, God, what is a healthy church and how do we become it? How do we stay faithful to it? The church is not a synthetic, it's an organic. It's not something we can synthesize. This is one of my biggest gripes with church planters and church planting sphere. I listen to a lot of podcasts and books and things about church planting because we're a church plant. And what I find is a lot of people seem to have this idea that if you just get the right code, you can plant a church. I disagree. Everything God has done up until this point has not because we got the code right. It's not because we cracked the code. It's because God did something, and it's organic. You ever have something organic sprout up in your front yard? And you're like, well, I didn't plant that, but it's beautiful. Wildflowers, boom, there it is. That's a church. Now, you can cultivate it. You can build a flower box around it. You can put a trellis in it, give it some, some nice structure to build up in. But at the end of the day, the church is a living organism. It has an identity in and of itself, and each local church, each expression of that is its own organism. We see that particularly in the book of Revelation when Jesus starts writing these letters to these churches, talking to them as though they have their own personality, right? So the church is an organic, it's not a synthetic. So we're going to look at three things that I think um, are good metrics of a healthy church this week. This week we're going to talk about um, the fact that a healthy church is a church that hears and believes the gospel, okay? That's this week. Next week we're going to look at a healthy church is a church that speaks and declares the gospel, And thirdly, a healthy church is a church that lives and applies the gospel. Okay, so that's the trajectory. And I'd really encourage you guys, if at all possible, try to hit all three of these. uh, Because you're going to learn a lot, I think, about why we come here on Sundays and why we gather during the week and and why Philippi exists and what's going to make Philippi continue to grow grow and be healthy as we look at these three things. Now, I want to drill down a little bit more before we get to our text. I want to drill down a little bit more on what a church is is, okay? What a church is. A church, if I put it the most simple I can imagine putting it, two words, a church is this. A church is a gospel community. Gospel community. Let me break down those two words. First of all, community. Community. What is community? Um, All of you are a part of lots of communities. There are many communities. And now through social media, there's a community for everything. There's probably a community for people that like to hop on one leg, You know, I guarantee, Google it, not right now. I want to hop on one leg. Are there people like me out there? Yes, there are. Join the Facebook group, okay? Community, really the root word of community is commune. It's it's common. It's, It's we all gather around this thing because we have it in common. So all of you guys have a geographic community that you live in, your zip code. So those of you that are from Grants Pass, your community is Grants Pass. And then you have the people on this side of the river and the people on that side of the river. That's your community. What you have in common is your geography. Some of you are part of other communities, interest communities. Some of you are into plays and acting. Some of you are into music and arts. You're in an arts community. 
Some of you are coffee snobs. I would, I'm a coffee snob. And we're, we're, we're in the coffee snob community, okay? And we can have instant commonality talking about whether we want single origin or blends or dark or light roast. And we're part of that community. It's what binds us. The word community has its roots in the Greek word koinonia. You familiar with that term? It's the word used in the Bible to talk about the church and the gathering of the church. Koinonia at its root has the word koine which you might have heard in the phrase Koine Greek. Have you heard of Koine Greek? Koine Greek was the common man's language. It was the language that really bound the whole ancient world. At the time of Rome, the Roman Empire, everybody, for the most part, had some ability to speak Koine Greek. It was the common Greek language. Okay, so a community is anything that binds us together. Okay, that's the second word. The first word, though, is gospel. A church is a gospel community. What is the gospel? Thank you for asking. The gospel is not something you do. It's not something, it's not an ethic. The gospel is news. It's a declaration of what is. And so that's very important that you understand that because a lot of people think about Christianity, they think it's something you do. Christianity is something you do. No, no. Actually, Christianity is based on something. The gospel is a declaration. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion. Euangelion was not a, a, an inherently Christian word, actually. It was a Roman word that was used to declare a new administration. So if Rome was victorious or there was a new Caesar in play or some big thing happened, they would send out a herald to declare the Euangelion. Good news. So Christianity sort of adopted that term because Christianity was birthed in the soil of the Roman, Greco-Roman world. They adopted this word, euangelion, and it became really a catch-all for all that Jesus did, all that Jesus was going to do. It's a declaration, a proclamation of what is. It's very important that you understand that because a lot of people think preaching the gospel is telling someone to be moral. Is that preaching the gospel? Absolutely not. Preaching the gospel should lead to morality, but preaching the gospel is a declaration of what has taken place. Well, what has taken place? What did the early church believe when they said gospel? What took place was that God the Father saw the separation between him and his creation because of sin and because of death, and he hatched a plan. The plan actually existed before creation. The plan was that he would send the second person of the Trinity, his son, Jesus Christ, and he would become part of that creation, fully God, fully man. And by becoming part of creation, he would actually live the perfect life that you and I are incapable of living because of the sinful nature that lives within us that we inherited from our father, Adam. Thanks, Pops. Jesus came in without a sinful nature. He came in and lived the perfect life. And then he atoned the perfect death. And then he allowed all those who believe in him to inherit his perfect life that he lived and to have their sins fully paid for. God's righteous and holy wrath was poured out on Jesus so that Jesus could accredit to us full righteousness. And it doesn't end there. The gospel also is that Jesus did not stay in the grave rose from the grave, becoming a new genesis of a new creation, reuniting God with his creation eternally, starting a new physical reality, and then he didn't just raise, he went to the right hand of the Father and took over the reins to all the cosmos and all creation for all eternity. It doesn't end there. Jesus is coming back. 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, he will return physically, make war on all evil, put death to death finally. He will establish an eternal throne that no one will trifle with. Sin and death will be removed forever. We get our new bodies, our new resurrected bodies, new heavens, new earth forever. We all live happily ever after. That's the gospel. Jesus loves you. Is that the gospel? It's a very small part of it. Yes, Jesus loves you. But that's not really the full gospel. So what is a church? The church is a gospel community. A gospel community. What binds us? What brings us here this morning? Why are we here? Why are you here? Hopefully you're here because you either have an interest in the gospel or you have decided that the gospel is true and you're ready to respond to it. And we don't do it together. We don't do it alone. We do it together. We are a community of the gospel. That is what a church is by definition. The gospel is our binding agent. And the second, and I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but the second we make anything else the centrality of this church, this church will start to die. You know, uh, liberal Christianity, it's not growing in the West. People that have forsaken the gospel for other things, people that have basically jettisoned the authority of God's word and are just about doing good things for the community and that's sort of what their commonality is, those churches are not growing because the gospel is not present. So, here we get into Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. I'm just going to make four points this morning. Number one, the gospel is for Christians. Number two, the gospel is what saves. Number three, the gospel is more than words. And number four, the gospel is often neglected. Here we go. Romans 1, starting in verse 7. You guys there? You ready? Okay. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Who's, who's writing this? Paul, the apostle, is writing this. Um, we're familiar with Paul. I don't need to give him probably too big of an introduction. The apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Okay? And I want you to see who Paul is writing to. Not Rome. We know that. Who Paul is writing to. To those in Rome who are what? Loved by God. And called to be saints. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. Okay, you see that? He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. He's not writing to unconverted. He's calling to saints loved by God. Verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So here, these are not just people of faith. These are people who are famously faithful. These guys are killing it. This is a healthy church. Paul's writing to a healthy church. A church, by the way, that he did not plant. A church that he did not start. He knew a lot of the people from the church through, through common um, paths crossing and, and missions trips and things, but, but Paul did not plant this church. They're a healthy church. They're a faithful church. The word is out about these guys. So certainly one would assume that Paul would have something next level for these guys, right? They're faithful. They're Christians. Let's talk about Enoch. Let's talk about the rapture and when that's going to happen. 
because that's in the Bible all over the place. No, it's not actually. Um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about secret things. Let's talk about deacon. No, is that what? I mean, surely Paul's going to do that because these guys are Christians. These guys, so surely they're ready for next level truth, right? He says in verse nine, "For God is my witness, whom I serve." with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul really wants to come see these guys. He's been wanting to for a while. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart, note this, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What does he mean by that? What spiritual gift? We'll come back to that. Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's actually a fantastic definition of church right there. Why do we gather here? It's not to hear Sam preach. It's not to sing songs. It's, it's, it's to mutually encourage each other in the faith, okay? That's the primary purpose of the church gathering. 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often, um, that I've often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So Paul is saying, I've been trying to get to you. I want to get to you, but I have this other work that is, that is pressing right now. I can't get there. I want to get there. Now, the question is, why does Paul want to go to Rome so bad? What is it that he wants to impart to them? What is this gift that he wants to impart to these Christians, to these saints? He tells us in verse 15, tune in here. He says, so I am eager to what? Preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What an interesting thing. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I can't wait to get to Rome so I can preach the gospel to the lost. What does he say? I can't wait to get to Rome so I can preach the gospel to Christians. Now, this is outside the box for us, right? Because we think the gospel is for the lost. We all already believe the gospel, right? So the gospel is maybe for uh, an evangelist, evangelistic service or uh, a tent revival or knocking on doors or, or it's for street witnessing where the gospel is for that moment that, that a non-Christian wants to know about the word. You share the gospel. But, but church, we move on to other things, right? Well, not really according to Paul. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to Christians. This thinking, I'm convinced, this thinking that we don't need the gospel as Christians to be continually preached to us, I think is truly led to much of the death and irrelevance of the church in the West. I, I, don't, I don't think the problem is that, that um, you know, we, we haven't, uh, we've made the buildings too big and we've made this too fancy. We made, I think the problem is we've stopped preaching the gospel. We've started to go, you know what? The gospel was great when we first got saved. Now let's move on to 10 ways to make your life better. Three ways to tune up your marriage. Four ways to be less anxious. These are the kind of sermons that are coming out, right? And, and oftentimes, those aren't bad things, but oftentimes those aren't coming out of the gospel. The gospel is something that we assume. And because we assume it, we actually don't know it. And because we don't know it, we're not being transformed by it. Let me say it very clearly. The gospel is not just the entry point into Christianity. It is Christianity. We do not come in, one person once said, you do not come in through the front door of the gospel into a whole other house. The whole house is the gospel. We are not only saved by the gospel, we're sanctified by the gospel. You know what sanctified means? It means we increasingly become set apart for God's purposes. Sanctified just means holied. We become holy. 
We become holy through the gospel. This message, this declaration, it has this ability to transform us. One of the healthiest churches that we know of in history was what? It was the first church, first century church. Why was it so healthy? I think it's because they were literally living in the light of the gospel. It had just happened. They saw the resurrection. They knew that it was true. The gospel is not something we graduate from. It is something we graduate further into. It's not milk. This is a misunderstanding of the passage. It talks about milk and meat. It's not the gospel's milk, and then we move on to meat, like angels and supernatural things. And No, that's not true. There are milk understandings of the gospel, and there are meat understandings of the gospel. Are you with me? Paul seemed to think that with the Roman church, the healthy Christian Roman church, what they needed most was they needed the gospel preached to them. Did they already know it? I'm sure they did. But yet Paul seemed to think that that was the gift that he needed to impart to them. He's eager to do that. What did Paul mean by preach the gospel? Read the book of Romans. That's, that's what he would have said to them if he was there. Literally, what Paul writes to the church at Rome is what he wanted to come say to them in person. Praise be to God, he couldn't show up because he wrote it down and now we have the book of Romans. Isn't that great? If he, had, if he, if he was able to come, we wouldn't have it. The book of Romans really is Paul's magnum opus on what the gospel is. And I'll use a big word and I'll explain it soteriologically. That means salvation. Romans, if you want to understand how God saves, he did it, explains it in the book of Romans. Okay, soterion is the Greek word for salvation. So really Romans is the book about how God saves through the gospel. And that's what Paul was eager to share with them. Which leads me to my second point. The gospel is what saves. Look at what Paul goes on to say. He's going to dote now on the gospel for a moment in verse 16. You probably already know this verse. Here's what he says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What does Paul mean by this other than that some were ashamed of the gospel? Well, who would be ashamed of the gospel? People that didn't see it as sufficient. There were these, this group in the early church called the Judaizers, and they were those who came into the early Greek church, because most of the converts in the first century were, were Greeks, uh, were Gentiles, Romans. Um, the, these Judaizers came in and they said, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Jesus, okay, fine, that's great. Um, but you're not really going to change unless you get circumcised, unless you stop eating these certain foods, unless you do these certain rituals. And they basically, they basically came in and said, yeah, it's actually, it's faith plus works, equals salvation. And what they're doing in that is they're, they're actually being ashamed of the gospel because they're saying the gospel itself is not sufficient to save. And so Paul comes along and he goes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Look on. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. What is the power of God for salvation? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not your craftiness, not your memorized Kirk Cameron approach, not your kind, I, I paid for someone's groceries in front of me. Do that, that's fine. That won't save anybody. Not mowing your neighbor's lawn, do that, that's great. That's not gonna save anybody. Not handing out free meals at the park, do that, that's great. Well, maybe don't do that. Um, I don't know, uh, I'm not sure about that. That's not gonna save anybody. What is the power of God unto salvation? The gospel, faith comes by hearing and hearing by handing out sandwiches. No. 
<laughs> that was a great laugh. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I can't wait to get there to preach it to you because the gospel is the power of God to save. This word power, I need to explain it. It's the word dunamis. Dunamis has a couple different ways of understanding it. One of them is dynamite. Sometimes that word, the, the etymology of it, the root of it is dynamite. It's explosive. It's powerful. Another one that you might hear often is dynamic. The spirit of God, the gospel, I should say, the gospel is dynamic. It's powerful and it's dynamic. What has the power to save? The gospel has the power to save. It's an explosive seed. And when it's planted, it has explosive power to change and transform people's lives. Okay, if we plant it in the right soil, it will bring forth life. Now, let me ask you a very pointed question. Do you believe that the gospel is powerful enough to save someone? Then plant it. Don't be ashamed of it. Speak it. They might look at you like you have worms crawling out of your ears. You're telling me some guy 2,000 years ago died on a cross for sin because God was angry and he poured out his anger on him and then he rose from the dead? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Don't water it down. There's no power in it if you water it down. You say, you know, God really likes you and he's nice and he just wants you to be happy. And it's not the gospel. It's not powerful. It won't change anybody. In fact, it will inoculate people to the truth. The gospel is powerful. D.L. Moody famously said, the gospel is like a lion. Just open the cage and watch out. Isn't that good? You just let it out. You're not the one that can save. You can't save anybody. All you do is speak the power, the dunamis, the dynamic, explosive power of the gospel into somebody's life but I want you to see something here because this isn't just about evangelism. I want you to see this one word and it's the word is. For the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation, present tense. That word salvation right there is not simply referring to people getting converted. The gospel is not only powerful to save people that aren't regenerated, it's powerful to save people that are saved. You know, salvation is a process. One, somebody once said this, and it's worth memorizing. You have been Christian, Christian. You have been saved from sin's penalty. That happened when you said yes to the Lord. You are being saved from sin's power. It's called sanctification. You will be saved from sin's presence. Let me say that again, because it's really good. I didn't make it up. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> you are saved from sin's penalty. You are being saved from sin's power, you will be saved from sin's presence. That is the full gambit of salvation. We think about salvation as though it happened once and now I'm done. Now I'm saved. Well, in a sense, you're still being saved. Do you know that? God is still saving you. He's still saving. That word salvation there encompasses within it, it's an umbrella term that covers our justification, our redemption, our reconciliation, our sanctification, and our glorification. All those Asian words. All the things God is doing, all the things God will do. Paul is saying the gospel is what saved you, the gospel is what's going to save you, and the gospel is saving you now. This declaration that Jesus is active and redeeming in the world, this is good news. It's good news. Notice what else Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is key. 
Jesus said the same thing to Martha. Remember, his brother Lazarus, or her brother Lazarus was dead. Martha went out to greet Jesus and said, where have you been? My brother died. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus is like, he's not, he's going to race. And she's like, yeah, I know, in the end. And Jesus famously responds, no, no, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Okay, the, the key here is saving faith. The key is not just hearing the gospel. Hearing the gospel doesn't save you. Believing the gospel doesn't save you. And listen to this. Don't miss this. Hearing the gospel doesn't sanctify you. Believing the gospel sanctifies you. That's what transforms you. It's coming face to face with this reality of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing day after day after day and putting it over the top of your broken, jacked up life and seeing that there is victory over the top of your problems. And the victory may not be seen right now, but it exists. Jesus is enthroned above all of your stuff. That's why we need to inject the unchanging declaration of Jesus' victory over the top of our grief, over the top of our struggles. That's why Satan's primary objective is to get you not to believe the gospel. Did you know that? Yeah, sure, he wants you to sin. Yeah, sure, he wants you to do something you'll regret. But what he really wants you to do is not believe that Jesus is enough or that he has saved you or that he is saving you or can save you. That's what he wants you to think. So what does that mean? It means we need to counterbalance the lies of the enemy with the truths of the Father. We need to hear the gospel. And this is why Paul is ecstatic to come and preach it to them. He can't wait to come and preach this to them, even though they already know it. Because Paul knows the transformational power of this message to change our lives. Read on in 17, for in it, the gospel, Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So here we learn that it is within the message of the gospel that we learn two things, that God is righteous and we learn how we can become righteous. What does Romans say? He who was, um, he became sin, Jesus became sin, he who did not commit sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So in the gospel, this is, this is so cool, in the gospel, God manages to remain righteous, yet save the unrighteous. How does he do this? He does this by sending his son who absorbs unrighteousness while he remains pure and holy. He stays righteous, and then he gives us his righteousness. So literally, we get his righteousness in the gospel. Okay, that, that's incredible. It's called double imputation. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul is saying here, he's saying, for in the gospel, we see that God is righteous and we see how we become righteous. And he says this very interesting line, from faith for faith. What does that mean? It means that we understand these things by faith and then we continue to grow through faith. We were saved by faith and we walk by faith. We were saved by the gospel and we are sanctified by the gospel. Where you start is where you end. You know, it's kind of a funny thing. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you probably had more clarity on how important the gospel was the second you got saved than you do now. Because when you first got saved, you were overwhelmed by your own sin. When you start to get your life together, you start to forget how much really of a wretch you still are apart from God. 
when we first believe the gospel, we're ecstatic. We'll tell anybody. The best evangelists in the world, the people who first get saved. Why? Because they are so um, in love with the fact that God saved them. And they just got to tell everybody. So how do we grow as Christians? We don't grow by becoming more wise. Yes, I hope we become more wise. And we don't grow by just doing more things. I hope we do more things. But we grow by being more aware of how much we need the grace of God. And that is what makes us effective. Why is the gospel so powerful? Here's my third point. Why is the gospel so powerful? Number three, the gospel is more than words. The gospel is more than words. You know, words are only as good as the substance they represent, right? They're only as good as the substance they represent. So if I had money on me, I'd pull it out. If I had a dollar right now, I don't even have a dollar. Uh, if I had a dollar, I'd pull it out and I'd say, you know, how much is this dollar worth? Well, the paper itself is worth very little, right? The paper itself, probably not even worth a cent. What makes the dollar valuable is that it represents value. Okay, it's a promise, and there is, hopefully, <laughs> something to back up that promise. That's why certain countries have higher uh, rates in their currency, right? Um, so our dollar is still pretty valuable because it still holds some weight. What makes the gospel powerful, follow me on this, what makes the gospel powerful is not that it's eloquent words, not that it's encouraging frigid mag magnet wisdom, it's, it's that it represents a reality. The words are backed up by truth. That's what makes the gospel so powerful, okay? Joe Biden, like him or not, is not the most intimidating guy, okay? I wouldn't be scared of him if I ran into him in an alleyway because he's like 80 years old, okay? But when Joe Biden goes over and has a conversation with Iran or North Korea, though he himself may not be that intimidating of a person, he represents all of the might and all of the military force and all of the economic power of the United States, right? So you may say, oh, I just don't know if I can proclaim the gospel. Well, you don't really need to be all powerful to do it. You just need to stand and hand out the currency. See, the currency itself represents the power and the equity and the value of the gospel. Jesus is who he said he was. He backed it up with the resurrection. And when you speak those words, you're just representing like currency the reality of the gospel. The gospel is something. And the words just represent it. People don't get saved because we say eloquent words. You say eloquent words all you want. People get saved because you say true words and the spirit activates it and causes it to be effectual in people's life. The gospel is not just words. Believing the gospel allows, literally, I don't know how this works, but it allows the resurrection life, which is like a nuclear force, Jesus regenesis into this world. I don't think that's the right grammar. I don't care. He regenesis into this world, becoming a new Adam, starting a new reality. He broke into this world, and when you preach the gospel, you become a conduit of resurrection life. It passes through your words and becomes powerful. Isn't that cool? And I'm not just talking about evangelism. I'm talking about when you speak to one another. Now, that's going to be next week's sermon about the importance of speaking the gospel we need to see that the gospel is not just words, it's something, it's someone. The gospel is Jesus, and Jesus is the gospel. But it's everything he's done, it's everything he's doing. We need to see this in John 15. Why don't you turn there really quick? John 15, verse 1. Jesus is having his final words with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And probably what is, I think, one of my all-time favorite chapters of the Bible, John 15. 
we'll actually punch in here at verse 3. He says, I am the true vine. And there's so much there I want to say about that. Israel was considered the vine, but they were a fruitless vine. And so Jesus here is basically saying, I am the true vine, as though there's been a vine before, but I'm the better one. Okay? I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He's being very redundant here because he wants us to get the idea. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I love to just take a deep breath after I read that verse. Ah, okay, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. He can do it all. I'm just gonna abide in him. That's very relaxing to me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Listen, verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The idea Jesus is trying to paint for these guys is this picture of a vine. He is the vine. He is the life source. His resurrection life, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he started a whole new life that we are saved and grafted into, and his resurrection life by the Spirit is now passing through our lives as we abide in him. We hold on to him. But what I want you to see here is that the key is that his word needs to abide in us. He says both. He says, you need to abide in my word, and my word needs to abide in you. We were talking about this this morning in our prayer group before we gathered, and River, actually, I love the way she put it. She said, that's kind of like God's word taking up residence or moving into your house and having space. It, it, it abides in your life. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want my word to literally envelop your existence. I want to move it into the center of gravity of your life, your thinking, your doing, your feeling. I want my word, which is the gospel, the truth that he's declared, I want that to be the central orienting feature of your life. How do we do that? We do it by hearing it and believing it and hearing it and believing it and hearing it and believing it and hearing it and believing it. And when we say stupid, untrue things, the body of Christ is there to say, actually, that's not true. I feel like garbage. I feel like a failure. I feel like God doesn't love me. Okay, that's valid. That's not true. We speak it to each other. We hear it from each other. That's what the body's for. You're not the only branch, and you're certainly not the vine. Aren't you glad? You abide in him. You let his word abide in you. You get up every morning before you grab your stupid phone. Think about the gospel. Think about the fact that you're adopted. Think about the fact that you have an eternal, physical existence to look forward to in the resurrected heavens and earth. Think about the fact that Jesus chose you before you were even born. Think about the fact that he has made atonement for the sins you haven't even committed yet. Think about the fact that his spirit lives within you. Then start your day. Let's start your day with Fox News, CNN, Facebook. Please, just don't do it. Let his word abide in you every day, every second. My, first, my fourth point is that the gospel is often neglected, and I don't know why we do this, but we do. Churches, church plants, by nature, are usually pretty healthy, and I think it's because we start out with this laser focus on the gospel. 
We came out here to Grants Pass. Um, we, we came out here to see people get saved. We came out here to, to be a community of the gospel. But here's what happens over time. Um, you start to pick up like a lint roller dropped on the backseat of your van, right? You just pick up stuff. Hey, we should do this ministry and that ministry and this thing and this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And you're like, okay, this is good stuff. Cool. Yeah, food pantry, coffee shop, bookstore, whatever. Nothing wrong with those things. They're all good expressions of the gospel. But here's the problem. Slowly, the gospel starts to get edged out and kicked over here in left field to the evangelism department. The gospel's the thing that people go out and they share on the streets. Here, we're focused about doing for the Lord. Here's the problem. Churches don't grow by focusing on what we're doing for the Lord. Churches grow by focusing on what the Lord is doing. Okay? That is how we stay alive as a church. The second we start becoming focused too much on what we're doing for God will be the second we are no longer abiding in what he is doing through us. We need to come back to the gospel every week. It's no mistake that every time Paul wrote a letter to address the behavior of a church, and there were some pretty R-rated churches in the first century. Let me tell you, Corinth, crazy stuff, okay? People getting drunk on the communion grape wine. I mean, it's just, just crazy, People pigging out so there was no food for people when they show up. All kinds of gnarly stuff. Paul spends always, he always spends the first half of his letters on nothing but gospel theology. He wants to remind them who they are. And then he addresses their behavior. Then he addresses their behavior. We as a church don't believe people change by telling them to change. We believe people change when they behold what God is and is doing. We believe, when they behold the gospel, that's when they change. Why? Because we're value-driven people, aren't we? I will give this thing up if I think this thing is better. Clearly, I don't think six-pack abs are better than cheesecake. Clearly, my value system has not worked that way, okay? I don't. I just don't. I like sugar, okay? Um, do you get what I'm saying? Okay, so what we think is most valuable will drive our behavior. Now, I opened up the very thing at the beginning. I said, what we believe influences what we do. If we believe that Jesus is the greatest supreme value in the universe, our morality will change. We'll become evangelists. We'll become holy. We'll become set apart. We'll become kind. The fruit of the Spirit will be manifested in our life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. If I get up here every week and say, be kind, be patient, give money, be sacrificial, love your wives. You're just, you, people love that. The sheep love to be beat. I don't know why. I think it's because we love to beat ourselves, right? Yeah, I'm terrible. Tell me I'm terrible. That's not going to transform you. What's going to transform you is when you realize that Jesus has done everything and is everything. And in response to that, the morality comes. So we are people that are centered on the gospel. It transforms us. So here, what does that look like? It means that we continue to come back to these truths. We will never move away from them. We will never outgrow them. We will never set aside the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. We will never stop talking about the gospel. And I promise you, if there's ever a Sunday where you don't hear the gospel, not as an afterthought, but you don't hear it as the central driving force of the preaching from this pulpit, you need to call me out on it or whoever's preaching. Sam, that's kind of extreme. Eh, not really. Because if the gospel's not in the mix, we're not going to change. We're not going to transform. 
I'm not saying every sermon needs to be like this where we deep dive on the gospel, but I'm saying the gospel's the why. It's always the why. It's always why we do what we do. It's always how we change. So we're committed here to gospel-centered exposition, which is just opening the Bible and seeing that the gospel in Jesus is the center of the word. The whole thing is two big arrows pointing forward to Jesus, pointing backward to Jesus. We believe that. We're going to continue gospel-centered declaration, which we did this morning, worship together, singing the truths of God together corporately. There's power in that. You know, there is power in declaring the truths of God. And when you guys do it together corporately, it's powerful. It's powerful. One of my favorite things about this church is that I get to hear everybody singing. It's not a concert. Just get to hear everybody singing. It's great. And you're singing truth Together, it's one of the last things we do in the church that we all do together. It's great. I love it. We're going to continue to be committed to gospel-centered communion, which means we do what Jesus said to do. We take the cup. We take the bread. We remember our need for atonement. We remember that his body was broken for us. And we're committed to gospel-centered conversation, which is what we do here a lot. We break into groups, and we have conversations. We'll do it next week. It's a big part of what we do. Now, maybe you're saying, Sam, that's not very inventive, that's not very creative. You're a church plant. You're supposed to be like cutting edge, okay? Um, church is not about finding proprietary technology in some unshared market space, okay? I, I, I seriously, I hear it all the time. You, you guys won't believe it. How many emails I got when we started this church? Who do you think you are starting another church? What makes you any better than all the other churches? I'm like, nothing. Like, what are you doing that someone isn't already doing? I'm like, nothing. Well, why are you planning a church? Because we need more churches. There's 33,000 people going to hell in our community. Did you know that? There's not, we don't need to get cute here. We don't need to get inventive. The church is a living organism. We need to figure out how it works and respond and say yes to that, okay? The things that we're doing aren't necessarily new. Some people think the idea of getting in circles and talking is new. <laughs> it's not. That's like Christianity 101. You go to church, you talk to other Christians. What? You thought of that? That's crazy. I know. A trip. No, we're not doing anything cute. We're not doing anything innovative. We're, we're, we're not about trying to be new or cool or cutting edge or proprietary. We're just about the gospel. We're about lifting Jesus up, seeing his power and what he's done and what he's doing, lifted high, focused on, encouraging one another. Next week, we're going to talk about how important it is to speak these things to each other. So that's all it is. I don't want to be a group of people like Hiro, Lieutenant Hiro in the Philippines. And this is what I really, I really think most Christians uh, in the West, I, mean, I shouldn't say most, that's too extreme. A lot of Christians in the West, they, they, they are living like the war's not over. They're, they're living not out of this response to this declaration of what has happened, but rather they're just sort of just living. They're not letting the gospel take a primary seat. We need to tune in to what has happened, Amen. Amen. All right, let me pray. And then we've got one more little thing here uh, that we're going to do this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. God, thank you that you saved, that you are saving, and that you will save. Lord, thank you that we know what is true this morning. But we're going to forget it the second we walk out of the door. So, Spirit of God, would you remind us? Would you use the church to remind us? Lord, we love you. We thank you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.